You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 57 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast. Your ticket to the EU. We broadcast on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as on the Star Wars Report website. Our episodes are also available on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of the hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Herleman. And with me like the whippet Jedi that I love and that the Empire can't destroy, the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. How's it going? It goes good. Nathan, how are things over there on the East Coast? East meets West. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, slowly making my way still through the Old Republic stuff, so my brain's a little fried, but otherwise, I'm good. <laughs> Getting there one uh, issue at a time, huh? Yeah, I'm at, uh, I'm at the storyline of the Sith Warrior right now, so it's that one and Sith Inquisitor, and I'll finally have all the info, and then I begin the gargantuan task of trying to integrate it all together and fit it into the timeline and such. Nice. Hey, have you had a chance to get your new insider yet, number 139? I have, but I haven't had a chance to read a whole heck of a lot of it. I've kind of skimmed through that production order thing of the Clone Wars and whatnot, but I haven't read the short story in it yet. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm there too. And that, that production order, man, that confused the heck out of me. I thought, like, finally we had the chronological order. It's like, oh, no, no, no. We're going to confuse things a little more. We're going to give you the production order. Then we've got an airing order. And we have still yet to give you the how they all fit together order. I'm like, are you well, they kidding so, me? They sort of did. I mean, they gave us the expanded visual guide that went through and had it. But apparently the upcoming, I guess what it's called, I guess, episode guide to the Clone Wars, whatever it's called, that Jason Fry is doing, that is going to eventually be the one that gives us a full run chronologically of at least the first five seasons. Though I have been able to confirm, though I can't say through what sources, uh, not Leland Chi, that Revival does take place in its original position, which means that a Revival is before the other three Maul stories of this season. So it's not, here it is at the beginning of the season to screw up all kinds of continuity, and now here's the rest of the story. They just moved it for an airing order perspective, but chronologically it's still where it should be, thank goodness. That whole messing with an airing order, you know, I mean, after watching a great show like Firefly die because of something like that, it's like, why would you do that to Star Wars? What are you thinking? It makes no sense. You know, I, I, I'm actually, you know, they got these little, the blaster section and stuff, and they got these statues and stuff. There's a really cool Boba Fett one and a Shock T. But that, uh, that Jaina Solo one that they show on the back, it's now down to $64.99, and I've seen it out of the place for like 58 bucks. I think I might treat myself to that for my birthday. That looks really cool. Cool. Yeah, I've been slowly but surely treating myself when the money provides some more signed stuff. Uh, got a signed copy of the Crystal Star coming soon. Got a signed, but, they didn't bother to say it was personalized to somebody. Copy of uh, Death Troopers that came recently that I managed to to sort of remove the personalization from and whatnot. So I'm slowly uh, getting back into that side of the collection here after a while of kind of, uh, I guess, putting it aside because other stuff was taking my attention. <coughs> All right, so enough about our, uh, our sort of our, our personal collecting here. This is an episode dealing with one specific topic as usual. So Mark, what are we talking about this time? Here 
Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we sit down with you to discuss Dark Horse Comics' Purge line, which consists of about five issues altogether. The first one being the self-titled Purge. It was a one-shot which sold out very quickly. Uh, it was later collected in the Star Wars trade paperback Clone Wars Volume 9 Endgame. Uh, it was later followed by the one-shot Second to Die and The Hidden Blade, and it was wrapping up, for now, with the duology of Purge the Tyrant's Fist. Now, consider this your spoiler warning, because here we go. And let me say right off the bat that this seems like another instance of bait-and-switch in Star Wars. We get this from time to time. We get the Clone Wars seasons like Battle Lines, and then... Not as much battle or secrets revealed and not much secrets revealed. We've got the the Force Unleashed uh, Ultimate Sith Edition and the whole thing of the Hoth level. But, oh, it's going to be exclusive. Oh, actually, no, not so much. Uh, I was kind of surprised here. Of course, I should have expected it that we have a whole series, five issues, uh, three different storylines that are one issue and then a two issue storyline all called Star Wars Purge. And not a single one of them covers the hot topic of bulimia. Really annoying. <laughs> The hot topic. Now, you know, when this one came out, I was scrambling everywhere to get a copy of that. You know, it was just a single one. They didn't say at that time if there was ever going to be any more, and I couldn't find it. And when they actually had it in the trade paperbacks, I was so ecstatic because this was, you know, I, I was just starting to come back and collect the singles, and this is the one series that I think about the fifth trade. From there on, I have all trades, and I kind of shifted into trades for a while. Uh, but getting that one and being able to get it, it was nice. The only downside, of course, is you only get a picture of the cover, and then on the inside, it just gives you an approximately. There's none of the uh, cool little inside stuff that tells you about what's going on or anything like that. But I think of of all the Purge comics, this first one is the one that, that resonates the most with what I was expecting of a Purge story. You know, the Jedi, they're on the run, Darth Vader's hunting them down, and he is wiping them out single-handedly. Uh, granted, by the time we get to the last one, the duology one, that one kind of incorporates what I was expecting from the psychological warfare standpoint. And as I was, I was mentioning to you before the show, Nathan, I kind of think that they could end it as a five issue series in that regards with the tyrant's fist being the wrap up. I mean, that, that would be a, a great collected issue, you know, by itself if they ever put it in the trade by itself. Yeah, there's not necessarily a need to go forward after the Tyrant's Fist, but at the same time, they have set up kind of a new dynamic as we get to that one. The first one, I, I mean, I would say that this series is, I mean, it's not really a series, and that's the thing. It's, the creative teams keep revolving, and what I find is that to think of it as a series kind of throws things off a little bit, because they're definitely not meant to necessarily connect together, and neither were the creative yeah, teams. Um at the same time, the theme connects them together, of course, of the Jedi Purge and whatnot. The first one, set about a month after the events of Revenge of the Sith, is by John Ostrander, who is somebody that I like his work from things like Republic and Legacy and now Age of the Empire and such. I mean, he's definitely one of the big names of Star Wars comic writing at this point. And it's got art by Doug Wheatley, um, finally in a story that I am really kind of interested in as opposed to, say, Dark Times. Uh, set in the same general era here. I actually found the first one was very much in keeping with what I would expect, as you said there, um, because we wind up with a whole stinking bunch of Jedi getting wiped out within that issue. Now, granted, they sort of set themselves up for it, 
because you've got Boltar Swan and Sui Choi. She's kind of bringing him into it. But you've got several different Jedi, some new, some old. We can run down the list of who all it is. But they wind up essentially setting a trap for Vader. And in bringing him in, wind up sort of orchestrating their own demise because he winds up tearing through them uh, pretty rapidly in the story. From the standpoint of Purge or Jedi Purge, I would always think that that would be kind of one of the main things that we would have to see is Vader just as this unstoppable killing machine if he really is supposed to be the one who orchestrates bringing down the Jedi Knights. You know, surely he's not someone, now that he's more machine than man, that is necessarily an equal to what Anakin could have been, but is he a match for one Jedi? And if he's a match for one, is he a match for two or three or four? And here he's a match for an entire group of Jedi, and that definitely makes it more believable that he could be the one to wipe out essentially all the remnants of the Order almost single-handedly, the way that that uh, Obi-Wan makes it sound in episode four. Well, and from a book standpoint, uh, the rise and fall of Darth Vader kind of gave you a, a really interesting glimpse of what it was like to become Vader in the first few days slash months. And by the end of that, he starts to kind of come into his own and sets up to, okay, he's, he's figuring out the body. He's figuring out how to go. Or did I say rise and fall? I meant dark Lord, the rise of Darth Vader. I'm thinking of the biology there that, slipped into the way but the uh the lucino novel there that come right on the heels of revenge of the sith i don't know why i'm calling it biology <laughs> i'm all over the place i'm tongue-tied today but anyway it was it was a really good opportunity to kind of get into what it's like to be vader and how he he kind of felt like he was like raised up kind of tilted forward with the new legs and all that you know he really gave you that that idea of what it's like to be him at that moment and how he might not have what it takes to take on a bunch of jedi and yet by the end of it, you know, you see that that it allows him to come to this new place where the rage he feels at being limited also adds to his ability. Because you were talking about, you know, is Vader in the suit comparable to Anakin without the suit? And, that, and that's a, that's been a long going debate, especially in the old force philosophy threads and stuff, you know. But I've always been of the firm belief that that his use of the dark side, the rage and all that that he had has got to be augmenting and helping for whatever physical limitations he had by being in the suit. And that book is a, is a great example of which helps you understand by the time you get to this book here why he's just a mean, lean, you know, Jedi dicing machine. And I, I just, I love though, there's an aspect where they're, they're all these Jedi, they're all collected. And uh, one of them, I, I believe it's Cho, he's talking, he goes, what you seek is revenge, Master Arana. And that is the, and that can only lead to the dark side. And this other guy, he's like, perhaps, and perhaps to destroy the Sith, one needs to go to the dark side. Has not the dark side proven stronger after all? To save the galaxy from the Sith, do we not, do we dare not use any weapon? And, you know, I believe at the time this came out, it's at the same time we were in the New Jedi Order. And that was a theme also coming up in there of, of you know, do the Jedi fight and do they fight using their emotions or do they step back because they can't fight without their emotions? And, and that was like an, a, a theme that was always there and always present, whether or not every author would run with it. But, you know, Ostrander picked it up, ran with it in a great way. Uh, another quick touch, though, the uh, illustration there is by Adam Hughes. And I love that cover. That's probably one of my favorite covers of all the Dark Horse covers where Vader's staying in the room and he's uh, chopped up that one little Jedi and she's got the hands cut off glowing with a burnt hole right through her chest. But just the, the coloring of it is awesome. Just I love it. And that's by uh, Adam Hughes. Yeah, that's, I believe, that Jedi in question is Cialan Wiz. And he, I think this sort of plays out. It almost feels like this was meant to be an end cap to, say, Republic. 
because in a lot of ways this is sort of a whatever happened to type of story, you know, like you get on those uh, E-True Hollywood stories and such, it's the whatever happened to all these other Jedi that have been unaccounted for now that we're ending the pre-Revenge of the Sith time frame uh, within our stories and moving on past episode three, we get Kofi Arana, who has wound up being sort of retconned into being a character we see in the background of, I believe it was Revenge of the Sith. We get uh, Sui Choi, who had appeared first way back, I believe it was in yeah, Jedi Council Acts of War. We get, as I'm clicking my way through here, uh, Roblio Darte from Dead Ends. We get Justice Far, who is, I believe, a new character here. We get Makis Shalas, or however you're supposed to say his name, another character who is sort of one of those background characters in the films, finally given um, some personality here. Dama Montalvo, who made his first appearance in Mace Windu, is the one being tortured at the beginning to provide information in the first place. Uh, Shade Potkin, also another background film character. Boltar Swan, of course, the most well-known of the background film characters in this particular story. And Cialan Wes, she actually was one of the iconic characters created for beginner players back in the Wizards of the Coast era of the role-playing game, starting with that Invasion of Thede adventure game, though I think she also appeared in the uh, the core rulebook, the original version of the Wizards of the Coast core rulebook. So we got all these different characters, and barring a couple, they're all ones we've seen before, only not in any major way, and here they're being brought back, they're being brought together as this group to bring down Vader, and they're of course unsuccessful in doing so, but in that scenario it winds up wiping the slate clean of many of these, you know, characters that were just sort of left hanging there to be part of the remnant that needs to be hunted down so that Obi-Wan can really be one of, or the last of the Jedi, him and Yoda, as opposed to it being, you know, the old joke was that thanks to Witches of the Coast, because if you really look at things like the West End Games stories and the official Star Wars Adventure Journal and whatnot, it seems like there was a whole lot of Jedi left after the Jedi Purge other than just Obi-Wan and Yoda. They had presented us now with even more to be left, if not for this story, wiping so many of them out in one shot. Yeah, and I don't know if there was anything that mentioned it, but uh, Swan, she pulls out a quarterist blade. She's like, this is a quarterist blade. Your lightsaber will now be useless for the next few minutes. More than enough time to kill you. Yeah, and it's some really good stuff. I and I've got the uh, the Marvel or who man, what is with me today? The Dark Horse two pack uh, of this, where it's got her and uh, what is his name? The, Kofi the guy, Arana, isn't it? Is it Kofi? Yeah, and so. it's it even comes with Vader's severed off hand holding the quarterist blade in the in the action figure pack. I love that because in it, you know, he's he gets the blade. And uh, I believe it's Choi. Yeah, Choi cuts off Vader's right hand, which is, you know, another reason why he, as Vader later, no longer has the hand we see in Episode 2. I, I don't know how many times he loses the, that hand and gets another hand. But, you know, it, it's always one of those classic moments of Vader losing a body part, you know. So many of the multiple upgrades this poor guy is going to have to have because that hand is no longer attached. And then he uses the Force to pick it up and stab the guy right through the chest. And I just, I, I just love the way he did it. Cause like the hands, of course, you know, holding onto it with robotic grip. So it's not letting go, you know, and classic, just Vader rage. He's getting all tore up and stuff. And I think like for me, that, that's one of the best things about these Vader fights is watching how, you know, messed up he can get and yet still carry on. You're like, man, how much more can this guy take? I mean, there's, there's a scene towards the end where you're looking at Vader's mask and his right eye piece is bro It's all broke out and busted out and you can see the, charred flesh underneath and the Sith eye 
just, you know, again, great illustrations, great stories. And this is just the first one. And that, of course, that whole I thing has been said that it's possible that will finally be the way that they'll just retcon why it is that this sort of a, a perfect, I think it was computerized uh, scanning uh, in order to make the uh, the new helmet for Revenge of the Sith, as opposed to the original helmet back in the classic trilogy. And the original helmet, not quite as perfectly done. It's a little bit asymmetrical. Of course, now the new one, very nicely symmetrical. So this gives us a reason why. Why is it that he has one that seems like it's, you know, perfectly balanced in the prequel era, but then when we finally get to the classic trilogy era, there's just something off about the symmetry. Well, probably because it had to be fixed after Purge, the original non, uh, no uh, subtitle Purge. Although I like to sometimes refer to this as Last Stand of the Jedi because it does have that opening uh, uh, on that great cover, that Adam Hughes cover. It does say Last Stand of the Jedi on it, although it's not meant to be a subtitle. But sometimes you just got to find some way to differentiate these. Uh, when talking about them, as opposed to constantly saying the first one shot, the original one shot, the one that was meant to just be one, and then it became five. And, you know, let's go ahead and move from there. We'll move into uh, the next one, which was Purge Seconds to Die. This one I found was a very interesting, uh, it, it had a different take on the events of what I was expecting from the first one. Totally not at all what I was kind of expecting to see. And I was kind of thrown off at first because, you know, we see a Keldor in it, and it turns out it's a female but at first I thought immediately, I'm thinking, oh, this is old Paul Kloon, you know. But of course you find out, no, that's not the case. Yeah, it turned out to be what, Plo Koon's niece, I guess it is? A yeah, it Shah is Koon, As character that we really had no reason to care about, who it's very hard to empathize with because, of course, you know, with the mask and everything, it you don't see much in the way of facial expressions and whatnot. And, of course, while sticking with John Ostrander to write the script in a very odd, sort of bizarre, twisted timeline sort of way here, where it's happening essentially all sort of in the mind of this character as she's about to die. Uh, she's kind of flashing back. She's all over the place to see what led up to this moment. They used a new artist for this one, Jim Hall. And I gotta say, for a story that's meant to be dark and brooding, Jim Hall does not nail it in this one. <laughs> all the characters... I mean, Jocasta knew... I mean, yeah, she's an older lady, but she looks, when we meet her in this comic, she looks like she's gone ten rounds with Tyson. Uh, except she still has her ear, of course. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she's she looks totally unlike herself in many ways. Um, Palpatine, I mean, the, the one thing that, that Art really nails is that his depiction of wrinkly Emperor Palpatine slash Sidious is more in keeping with the not- quite right-looking way that he looked in Revenge of the Sith whenever he was all wrinkled up, as opposed to his later sort of Return of the Jedi era look where he actually, you know, looks the way that we're used to him, where he doesn't look like he's been just sort of like, you know, squished and wrinkled out of Play-Doh. He looks like it's actually the ravages of time or age or the dark side or whatever. Uh, so that he gets right, but I think it's more because Lucas's version of him in Episode 3 was kind of eh. And he just kind of goes along and tries to make his own version of the Emperor that winds up also being eh. Just this, I don't know, of, of all the issues of this series, this is the one that if they would go on, go in and remove one, this is the one I'd say, please get it out of there. The only thing that really stands out to me as a redeeming quality of this issue is the fact that right before dying, Shakun has a vision essentially of the classic trilogy heroes and the end of Return of the Jedi, and later on, uh, Luke with Mara and some of the other Jedi who he's going to wind up training and whatnot. You know, the whole idea of she's sort of seeing a vision that she knows 
it's okay for her to die because someone else in the future will actually be the one to bring down Vader, not her. Her actual words are, uh, in the, the narration, the future does not depend on me. Okay, that's lovely and all, but what, do you subscribe to the Padme Amidala school of why you should bother living? Somehow? Because it's like, all of a sudden, when she sees that, she's like, oh, it's okay for me to croak. All right. It just, uh, it, it Corrin just... Horn and Kyle Cartan, they're both there, it's okay. It's like, somehow, seeing this vision means that it's okay. She's lost the will to live, or at least lost the need to live. Really? I don't, I don't know. Granted, she's gonna die anyway, so it's sort of a pat ending there, but, I don't know, this one was the one that really felt off to me for the entire rest of the series, and it doesn't seem to add much to Vader's characterization, which is what the other Purge comics tend to do. Well, I, I, I think this is more kind of fitting into the Purge era, because the one thing it, to me that it illustrates is we see a Jedi being kind of becoming a dark Jedi. Sidious has is, is been luring her over. He basically says, if you can kill Vader, go for it. You'll be worthy, obviously. And so she sets up a trap in the, the bowels of the Jedi Temple and all that. And, of course, you know, the trap fails. She has that vision. But I did love the fact, though, that it did show, you know, we, we've got Seagal. We've got Koran. Uh, we've got Kyle, Luke. I'm believing that's Mara. It could be Jaina. And then uh, Saba. And I, you know, that, I thought that was interesting. I thought that was kind of cool. But it definitely made you, you, for the character, it was like, okay, well, there's no need to go to the dark. Everything's not as hopeless as Shakun really felt it was. Because that's what I, I saw was her, her just kind of giving into her despair. And the only way out is to join the darkness, which is kind of what they were talking about in the first one. The only way to fight darkness is with darkness. But now we're seeing it from another angle, you know, kind of like the Luke in uh, Dark Empire angle. But through her vision, it gives the reader the out that we always knew was going to happen. Everything will be good by the end. You know, and it was interesting, though, how, you know, Vader or uh, Palpatine's like, she died at peace, not despair. You're certain of this, Lord Vader. I am sure of what I felt, my lord. I wonder what she saw, or thought she saw. I did not share her vision, my lord. It doesn't matter. The Jedi was weak. She and all the other Jedi no longer matter. We Sith now control the Empire and through it the galaxy. Our rule will never end. That is my vision. And mine, my master. You know, so so in that regard, I thought it, it worked. I liked it. I wouldn't necessarily want it removed. But I will agree that the imagery, I, I don't know. Okay, when you look at the title on this one, the way the purge is written, the way that the letters curve and everything, I don't know. The the, the illustrations on the inside have that kind of bubblegum pop feel to it. So, it, yeah, in that regard, it definitely does not feel dark or gritty. I would say the story itself is probably the darkest of this whole issue. Um, I did like, though the dark side aspect of the Jedi falling and the fact that it was Poe Kloon's niece of all people, you know, and then, then we had the cool little touch on the new Jedi order there. I'm always a fan of that. So I like that. And at least, you know, it's another of these Jedi that we had seen before briefly. And I guess a flashback back in uh, Republic and the stark hyperspace war storyline. So, you know, uh, at least it's clearing the decks of her, but I don't know. See, I, I don't get the whole, I, granted, I never liked the original purge logo anyway. But it seems odd. Uh, I mean, yes, this logo might equate with sort of the bubblegum pop type thing to some of the uh, the art style of uh, Hall inside the issue. But then again, they had that same logo back in the original Purge, and that had nothing even close to that style of artwork. It had Doug Wheatley 
doing the relatively more realistic style artwork. Fortunately, though, they will wind up changing the logo from here on out, starting with the third one-shot in the series. Which is Darth Vader's searches for surviving Jedi and, dun-dun-dun, the Hidden Blade. Now, I gotta say, the cover on this one reminded me of some uh, Japanese samurai-style stylization there. Uh, Vader with his chest all puffed out with the lightsaber blazing with his cape kind of catching in the wind. Uh, but the whole art has that same kind of smoky feel of the cover. And that, I think that's really the first when it comes to the covers and the arts on the inside really lining up. I mean, granted, the first one did to a degree. The second one, I actually like the cover better than the art on the inside. But this one, I, I don't know. I'm not really a big fan of that smokiness. I like it better on the cover, but not so much inside. Well, you know, this time we wind up actually with the same artist doing both. You know, this time we've got Chris Scalp doing the art. And I got to tell you, Chris Scalp is one of my favorite Star Wars artists at this point. He does sort of the painted style art. Um, it's somewhat over the top sometimes as far as, like, like I said, sort of the smoky nature of it. Sometimes the details get lost a little bit. Um, but I really like it. I mean, he's the same guy who did the artwork uh, more recently for Blood Ties, for both actually of the Blood Ties storylines. The tale of Jango and Boba Fett, the first one that most people just call Blood Ties, and then Boba Fett is dead. I actually think this, if I'm remembering correctly, I think this was his first interior artwork of a Star Wars comic, though I may be, be wrong on that one. Um, I don't know, I like the art style. It definitely gives it more of sort of a darker feel to it this time around, although I'm not sure exactly what it is that the the cover is trying to get out there. Uh, Darth Vader searches for the surviving Jedi and, okay, good so far, the hidden blade. He's not searching for a hidden blade. Never in this story is he searching for a hidden blade. Instead, there's a point at which he has a hidden blade because he's killed a Jedi Padawan and taken his lightsaber, and the Jedi he's fighting at the end, the Jedi Master or Knight he's fighting at the end, has a hidden regular blade alongside his regular lightsaber. That's lovely and all. And there are hidden blades involved, and maybe there's some level at which, ooh, the hidden blade is supposed to, like, strike it, you know, the heart of the Empire, whatever. But he's not searching for a hidden blade. That's definitely a misleading uh, cover blurb this time around. Yeah, I mean, see, for me, this one is the one of the series I would just be like, yeah, you could just pull that one. I mean... That I, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, man, did I even read this? <laughs> like, but I did, but yeah, it doesn't really jump up. I mean, yeah, you watch the Padawan go, and you watch him do the, the classic, I'm Count Dooku gonna cut your head off kind of maneuver there. And, and the uh, the IK-48 device, or no, no, not IK-48, that's the probe droid he has. Uh, the Master launches some kind of incendiary device, and it launches and crash lands, you know, did they ever mention what exactly that is, or is that? Oh no, that's just the thing that pulls up the big. Uh, what were? Is that the same? Is that the same monster from uh, the New Jedi Order? Is that a Leviathan that pops up out of the ground, or is this something totally new? Because I, is, I don't know. It comes up, and I think Leviathan because of the art style. This is actually the um, Sugati. It's the first appearance of this new type of creature that's apparently native to this planet in the issue. Uh, uh, Otavon. What? 12, I believe it is. Okay, so that device that the guy launches was basically like if you've ever played Dune 2000, the game, uh, it's one of those little thumpers that bring the worms up to the ground, in an essence. I mean, until Vader crushes it, and then the monster goes about its way, and Vader doesn't kill it. I mean, he even says, you do not want to kill me, and then he smashes it any more than I want to kill you. But 
I, yeah, there, for me, I, I did not catch what the big growth moment here was, what the, what was at stake for the Jedi. I mean, really, at this point, it seems like all the Jedi care about is just killing Vader. I mean, there's nothing beyond killing Vader on their side of things. I mean, no wonder Luke wins. He doesn't want to kill Vader. He wants to convert Vader. Hey, works for Palpatine. You actually kind of like this one. Um, they managed to pull off this idea that Vader is... It's the same thing that we see with Dark Times a little bit and in Tyrant's Fist. This idea that Vader is somewhat obsessed with the idea of wiping out the Jedi, and from the perspective of the Emperor, that's not enough. They need to be able to rule, they need to be able to control the Empire, and this obsession with the Jedi could wind up leading to, you know, doom or distraction, you know, in the least case scenario for Vader. We've got this at-at... A production facility on Otavon 12. I actually like the fact that it is Outpost RD-778083, a.k.a. Trimmer Base. Um, when I used to do audio dramas a lot, like uh, Second Strike, I added in a lot of those quick little, like, fun naming things. Like, uh, you might have uh, a, a stormtrooper named TR-519 for Trilogy release May 19th for The Phantom Menace, for instance. And here, that's what we've got. We've got a, a Tuckerism uh, in a sense here. We have RD release date, 77, A New Hope, 80, Empire Strikes Back, 83, Return of the Jedi. And it's one of those things that Hayden Blackman sometimes will work into his stuff. And this is Hayden Blackman, not John Ostrander this time around. Um, but I like the fact that it's, you know, there's this, this at-at base, and they're in the process of making them, and there's all kinds of issues with the local rebels who have these Jedi on their side. And the Emperor basically says, do not leave the base. Don't obsess over the Jedi. Don't leave the base. The base must be protected. And he goes off, as expected, disobeying Sidious. He goes off, finds the Jedi, kills the Jedi, but while he's gone, one of those devices that bring those creatures was launched into the base, and sure enough, by the time Vader gets back, the base is utterly destroyed. And yeah. Palpatine arrives with a couple of his royal guards and basically leaves Vader there on the planet for a while to meditate on his failure, as he actually said earlier in the issue. There's this moment where he says to Vader, You will remain at Trimmer Base until the walkers are complete. If you defy my orders again, you may never leave. And that's what he essentially follows through with, at least for a short time, the idea that, you know, you will be staying on this world to meditate on your failure. So I actually like the fact that it at least pushes forward this idea of Vader's obsession, which is something we get in some of the other storylines of this time period. Although it's, I think it's probably played out more in detail and better in Purge the Tyrant's Fist. We didn't really get much of that back in Seconds to Die, and the original Purge was so action-packed and so focused on the Jedi side of things that we didn't really get any chances to see that much insight into his obsession, only his massive killing potential. I would say the only insight you're going to get there was what little insight you were getting in Dark Times. I think that's like the tie-in there is that because there were there are moments in Dark Times where Palpatine's telling Vader the same thing. You need to back off. But you're right. You're right. That is the, the main purpose of this because I, I love at the end where he's like, tell me your name before I kill you. Hylon. In the language of my people, it means trickster. You came here, or he's all, you came up here with no hope of escape. Why? Go back to where you belong and all will be clear. And yeah, you know, as soon as Vader sees that device and you see Palpatine behind him, he's like, bastard. You know, you're like, oh yeah, that's not good. And 
Okay, yeah, I guess you have to get to the last page on that one to really kind of get the understanding of where this affects Vader. I guess I was a little premature in, in saying we should throw this one out. Uh, but yeah, it is one of those where if you're not paying attention, though, and you miss a page, you will totally be like, well, I thought that was a stupid comic. Because comics are like that. They're literally, if you miss a panel, you might miss the meat and potatoes of the whole issue. And for what it's worth, this is definitely an issue that you could skip. As I say always on uh, uh, from the Star Wars library over on YouTube, uh, this is not an essential read by any means. Because even in the grand scheme of things with, you know, what the other issues have been doing as far as wiping out Jedi that were previously existing, you know, this has a new apprentice and a new Jedi and a new creature and a new planet, I believe. I mean, pretty much everything but Palpatine, Vader, and the Royal Guards and the Adats themselves tend to be new in this story. So it's not like it's wrapping up any loose ends. Although it does create a plot hole in the aspect of it does leave Vader stuck on the planet. So there is one of those uh, Timothy Zahn at at one-off stories there. Somebody ever wants to hit that up. <laughs> well, this, this is Hayden Blackman, and he's done some really good stories, but this kind of uh, ironically connects back with the last time we saw Vader left in desperate straits uh, with no resolution in sight by Blackman, which was the Force Unleashed 2's ending, as I recall. Yeah. Now, our next one, that is the duology here. It is Star Wars Purge the Tyrant's Fist. Uh, and that is script by Alexander Freed with art by Marco Castello. Castello? Castello. I probably screwed your name up. Sorry. With uh, Andrea Cella. Uh, now, the cover art on this one is done by Dan Scott. And I remember watching uh, a, a YouTube video of how he made that. And I, I was a very interesting little video to watch. I think it was like a five-minute little video. But really cool. Uh, I'm not really a fan of the cover myself. It, Vader's mask looks kind of like somebody slapped it down and it got bent in a flat face type position. So not really a fan of the art, but it was cool to watch him draw it. Yep. Interesting new creative team this time around. Um, the artwork on the interior, I mean, it it does its job pretty well. I mean, I'm not sure there's much to uh, to complain about with the artwork here. It's not overly stylized in any particular direction. Uh, not overly dark, not overly cartoony. It's, I mean, it's just solid artwork. Though I went into this kind of worried because the script was by Alexander Freed. And Freed is the guy who did, among other things, uh, The Old Republic, The Lost Sons. And I don't know. Alexander Freed's work so far has never caught my attention in a way that made me care about any of the characters that he's developing on his own. He just, for some reason, he, he'll take the characters through the storyline, through the motions, through the action, and we'll see what we need to see to understand the plot, but not really get much depth or interest in those characters. That's why I was so glad when Annihilation came around, because Drew Carpetian was able to add some depth to the character of Theron Shan, who technically we saw back in The Lost Sons, but who never really got you know much of a likable uh, character development to him. So I was very concerned here. And I got to say, after the first issue of this, I was not having particularly high hopes for where this is going to wind up going. It felt like just another one of these throwaway stories about a Jedi we've never met before being hunted down by Vader. And, oh, there's complications, and Vader's going to find out some creative way to take him out. I was very pleased, though, with the way that things played out as we moved in through the second issue. Because the second issue really turns a lot of our perceptions on its head, and at the same time manages to fit in very well with the way that the Jedi Purge was described. 
as not just a purge of actual Jedi, but also of information and such, and, and the people's memory, in a sense, about the Jedi, uh, in all of the materials that we got in the EU prior to, say, 99-2002 or so. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one thing that Karen Travis got nailed on a lot, was that she depicted the Jedi in a way that the Bantam-era books told us that's how people of this time were starting to predict and, and depict the Jedi. And this, again, continues to follow along in that aspect. And the first one, especially, you know, I was in that same boat. I think the coolest thing for me was the Iguana Jedi, although I noticed that uh, the Wikipedia is calling it an unidentified Barabel Jedi Knight, but I do not at all think that is a Barabel. That doesn't look the same. looks a little different, and I think uh, if we're going to be that kind of speciesism over there in the Wikipedia, maybe we need to back off a bit because, I mean, come on now. Just because he's got scales and he's a lizard doesn't mean he's a Barabel. But, uh, you know, it, it was really interesting, though, that the way, uh, what's her name, uh, Namada, uh, the Colonel Namada in there, she, I don't know, I, 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 I kind of wonder, like, uh, is there a reason why, for the story, they make, once again, an Imperial woman so strikingly beautiful? I mean, we're, you know, I mean, her chest at times is a little bigger than other scenes, but that's not my main issue here. It's, it, it just, once again, one of these positions of power, and it's a, a gorgeous looking female. It's like, okay, is that supposed to be an imperial stereotype or is that just a, a issue of the medium comics that we're dealing with and where, where the artists are just drawing them all to be beautiful? Or is it supposed to be a story related aspect here that the empire will put women in charge, but only the ones that meet their certain piggish stereotypes, you know? I mean, and if that's the case, I like that to play into it, but it's just one of those things I ponder about these things. Like it, it may not have anything to do with the story, but. It gets me going. It makes me thinking about it. And it's interesting, though, again, getting back to that Iguana Jedi, you know, he's being held invaders trying to get this information about Chow Bene and, you know, and the, the rebellion and all this that's going on. He won't do it. So Vader starts choking him and torturing him. And, of course, then the guy gives him all the information. It's like, What's, what kind of a Jedi are you? you know? <laughs> but it, it's fun in the aspect of it. This is something I'm expecting going around the galaxy right now. These little kind of fires coming up and Vader going and quelling them one at a time. And of course, whoa, what's this word of a Jedi? And he starts coming down on things, you know, again, getting back to that, that aspect of what Karen Travis was playing with, with, you know, the members of the galaxy, which we see really focused in the second half when we get to Namada's point of view. I mean, she starts is basically like she's filing a report. I, I found the second one was probably the stronger of the two. I mean, granted, I really enjoyed the Iguana Jedi, but aside from that, the, the second one definitely had the biggest, I don't know, deliver. Yeah, the first one, it, it's sort of there just to sort of set up the planet, it seems like, for the most part. And we do wind up, finally, with a... a, a the idea is that we have this insurgency. And Palpatine is essentially lecturing Vader on how his methods aren't working. I mean, just going after the Jedi and killing them is not doing anything, especially when you have an insurgency that will look at fallen Jedi essentially as heroes, essentially. That it's not, you know, it, these are, these people are not terrorists. They are heroes in the people's mind, and the Jedi themselves help lend credibility to their cause. So, you know, he, he very much pushes towards the idea, and he says in the first issue, when Vader actually suggests the idea that maybe you could uh, if you really want to wipe out the insurgency, just blast the planet, right? You know, yeah. total bombardment the will work. The destruction of the planetary population means the loss of Vulcan and its resources. 
I did not send you there to lose, Lord Vader. Our new order has not yet consolidated its power. At this delicate juncture, we cannot afford to rule through fear alone. But the point he's making there is that, as he says in the next line, he says, if you can't think as a ruler instead of a soldier, I'll find other duties for you, which ironically is kind of what seems to be happening in the first issue back of uh, uh, In the Shadow of Yavin with the new series. But by the time we get to the end, they've managed to basically, they find things that the people want, uh, free education for the children. So they wipe out you know, a monument to the Jedi, put up a new education center there. They find ways to essentially take uh, landmarks associated with the Jedi, destroy them, clean clean them up, make it something that winds up being better for the populace so that by the end of it, when we finally see Chonabene, he's been defeated by Vader, but left alive and broken. When he stumbles into town and gets killed by Namada in Stormtrooper armor, uh, they're able to play him off as, well, he was just a drunkard. He becomes an embarrassment to the populace rather than a hero. So that by the time we get to the next conversation between Vader and Palpatine, which last time didn't go so well for Vader, uh, Vader makes the argument that the purge will continue across the Empire as it has on Vaclan until all memory of the Jedi Order is extinguished. That is my intention, Master, he says. And Palpatine responds, then let it be done and let us march into an age unencumbered by history. And Lord Vader, you are learning. It was past time you outgrew your obsession with petty hunts and turned your focus to greater things. Vader has reached a point where he's starting to understand the concept of, okay, if I want to really wipe out the Jedi, it's not just about killing them off. It's about killing off their memory. But you don't kill off the memory by simply, you know, using censorship. That'll work to a degree, maybe on future generations, but the current generation has fond memories of the Jedi. We must find a way to turn them towards the Empire and against the memory of the Jedi. And anything that reminds them of the Jedi, we can slowly essentially corrupt, tweak, co-opt to make it ours. And in doing so, do like they did on Vaclan, where hopefully within a generation or two, at least from the Empire's perspective, the Jedi will be essentially a distant memory and only a footnote in history that sometimes, you know, people will literally begin to forget. I mean, it reminds me a lot of after the fall of the Roman Empire and Charlemagne's Empire as well, you get into this era of European history, Western European history, usually referred to as the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, like Dark Ages being the first half of the Middle Ages, Dark Ages and High Middle Ages. But especially during the Dark Ages, half of the Middle Ages, that sort of 500-year stretch out of a 1,000, you've got this era in which people aren't necessarily being taught the old ways. They're not being taught uh, old Roman styles of doing things in many respects. Feudalism is the order of the day. Manorialism is the order of the day. And by the time you reach the point where we get to the Renaissance, a lot of older ideas have literally been lost because people aren't being taught to read or write. There's not much access to books at this point. People aren't being taught Latin or Greek, which the classics were written in. And it takes the Renaissance to come in and remind everyone of these ideas so they can finally start to rebuild on the classic civilizations and what they were able to pull off. That's sort of what's happening here. We're entering the dark times, the dark ages, when it comes to the Jedi and their memory being suppressed so that by the time we do get to Luke and a new Jedi Order, he is in a sense having to pull off a new renaissance of the Jedi. And up to this point, we've seen bits and pieces of this. I'm I'm reminded of some of the Jedi artifacts that Koran Horn finds in the X-Wing books uh, that were saved by Palpatine during the Purge and confiscated from worlds and whatnot. I mean, it, that to me 
That's the big impact of the Tyrant's Fist, and really of this entire series. It's this idea that there is the Jedi killing, but there's more to it. Uh, it can't just be Jedi killing, or you lose a lot of the dynamism that comes with this style of era. And with Tyrant's Fist, Alexander Freed, whose work before I was not very impressed with, managed to pull off a second issue that really impressed me in his sort of grasp of the fundamentals of what must be done historically when it comes to altering perceptions of an entire era uh, about bygone times. You know, it's the whole, the, the victor writes the histories, but it takes a while for history to essentially yeah. be rewritten. Well, yeah. It, and, and one of Namada's, you know, her last thought at the end of the first issue, you know, Vader explains the plan is simple. When we are finished understanding, we will use that knowledge to carve the heart from this rebellion. The people of Valken will awaken from the nightmare that was the Jedi Order, and in the daylight of the new empire, they will forget their heroes ever existed. And then she goes, today I spoke with Darth Vader. Today we began the purge. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that's, that's exactly what it is. And, and how the, the first, uh, you know, the next issue, the way it begins, it talks about how come these people worship the Jedi, what the reasons behind their building statues and naming buildings and things after the Jedi and what it means to them. And, and yeah, it becomes all about breaking them down and being in the right place at the right time. And I mean, literally by the end of it, it it's, it's, uh, Nadama herself. She's wearing stormtrooper armor, looking like a regular clone trooper or stormtrooper and uh, shoots the guy because he's been gassed. He's, he's basically, he's trying to fight Vader inside this place. It's got some, I don't know what kind of gas exactly. I'm sure it's, it mentions it, but the gas is basically killing him. He's got so long to get out and invaders like the bombings have sealed off most of the exits to the surface. Your mind and body will decay. Perhaps if you are fortunate, you will escape before you succumb to the toxins, which he did. He got out of there, but unfortunately for him, I mean, and, and, and it kind of, that this is the sad part. It's like, He's literally asking for help, and everyone's too afraid of the Empire to even bother to help him. And, I mean, that, that also plays into, you know, the fear aspect of it, where Palpatine's like, well, the fear, we can't rule through fear alone. Well, Vader found a way to use that fear to his advantage. And, you know, it, you know, it, it's funny because you, you mentioned Koran, and it makes me think about how in, in I Jedi, Koran too uses fear to his advantage, but not so in a dark way, not as a way that Vader's using it. But it's just one of those things that makes you stop and think, you know, you mentioned about the lost informations and stuff like that. It's like, I wonder more if what Koran did in I Jedi should have been considered a full on bad thing. I mean, you know, I know when I read it at the time, I didn't think so, but maybe now, maybe not so sure. My only beef, I would say, with the Tyrant's Fist is that, again, we've got a Jedi we've never met. Uh, it would be nice if they would go through and sort of comb through some of the the Jedi who were unaccounted for again. If there are any more, maybe there's not all that many that they could use. But go back through maybe the Republic comics, go back through some of the books of the time, see if there are other Jedi out there who need to be accounted for in some way, and make them the ones in these stories. Because at least then, we have what we've been lacking, really, I think, uh, in the last couple of stories. The Hidden Blade was all new Jedi. Purge, the Tyrant's Fist, all new Jedi. Uh, Seconds to Die, yeah, it was a Jedi we'd seen before, but we didn't really care about because we'd only seen briefly. It was really just that first issue that brought us characters we were familiar with in most respects, um, including some that were actually background characters in the movies and made them ones that were targets for Vader. It would have been nice if instead of this being Chona Bene, somebody we'd never heard of, 
They could have slid someone in there, perhaps a background Jedi, you know, from the arena on Geonosis or something. Someone who had never been accounted for as far as dying during the Clone Wars or Order 66, who he could have said, hey, see, not only are we getting this good story about the beginning of the Purge in terms of information, we're also getting the end of, you know, a loose thread out there. Though, speaking of the idea of, you know, we're, they're starting the Purge, it does kind of make me wonder, looking at what Namada says in the narration there at the end of the first issue, is this actually what will officially be considered EU-wise, canon-wise, as being the beginning of the Jedi Purge? Is it possible that the previous stuff was not really the Jedi Purge with a capital P because it was just about killing, it was not about the information? And when she says, we begin yeah. the Purge, is she referring to the Purge just on Backland or in the galaxy at large? I mean, there's a lot of ways you can interpret the last couple things she said. I think it, it sort of puts into perspective this idea that this has been a very nebulous concept. We know that they try to suppress information. We know that they kill the Jedi. How is it done? What tactics are used? You know, who is assisting Vader in doing so? Like Namada. That's the kind of stuff we haven't really gotten in a lot of previous works that is finally being explored. Though you got to wonder at one point, you know, are they going to now back off from this? Because we're hearing now that ABC is apparently interested, you know, an arm of Disney, is apparently interested in the live action series, which would be about the crime families and whatnot, tying into possibly Star Wars 1313, but set in this same era. You know, maybe now they're going to back off very much like, you know, other ears have been backed off or other concepts have been backed off because they didn't want to run into something Lucas is creating and wind up with what now would be sort of the, the Clone Wars continuity train wreck. Well, I, I want to say you're right in the aspect that this is the launching of the public purge that up until this, all the comics that took place was more Vader's obsession, which led to the full on purge. And that this way through this issue, we see Vader is the one that set up the foundation of, you know, we will win by understanding. We will understand them and we will convert them. I, I think for me, though, the most confusing thing was the last two panels where they got the little girl digging through the rubble and she picks up a piece and walks away with it. And then, uh, you know, it, it's talking uh, about how she's got a daughter and I'm assuming it's her daughter, but I don't understand the significance of the piece of rubble she picked up and what it's supposed to be. That completely had me confused. I'm like, uh, OK, is it supposed to have meaning or not? <laughs> I think it really was just, you know, the idea that there is nothing left of what was there before. I mean, she says, you know, whether we like it or not, there's nothing of the old ways to return to, not even a trace. And you're seeing, you know, just random looking rubble that presumably comes from one of the, you know, destroyed statues and such that we saw throughout. I think it's just kind of another you know, way of saying, you know, the old stuff has been swept away. This little girl, this new generation, they will not grow up. With the Jedi as their heroes, the purge is going to work. Now, I would like to see one more, maybe one set even closer to A New Hope. Maybe there's one last group of Jedi, maybe not even one last, but one last that we're finding out about that has been, you know, kind of uh, children of the Jedi style, collected themselves, having a colony or something, you know, trying to survive. And Vader finds them and it's considered the last of the purge kind of thing. Like it'd be kind of cool to have one more to kind of tie it up all together. Even though the first one of this was already collected in another trade, I think it'd be cool to get six of them and do another trade all purge. I think that'd be just kind of fun little collection. Or go darker. You know, I mean, these stories kind of open up the idea of being dark. And I know that dark times purports itself to be dark, but aside from a character being eaten early on in the series, it really hasn't felt all that dark to me. Just kind of blah so far. Um, but purge, 
you know, it's got the darkness and it handles it fairly well so far. You know, give us something where maybe it's closer to a new hope. Someone, maybe a rebel, is out there looking to try to find an old Jedi and recruit them, gets captured by the Empire, and maybe we get a, you know, uh, oh, I forget the name of the episode. Uh, Babylon 5 has an episode where John Sheridan winds up being captured by Earth during the Civil War between uh, Earth and, you know, Mars and the other allies like uh, Babylon 5 Space Station and whatnot. And we wind up with this, this sort of trying to break his mind. You know, give us something like that or something like, you know, trick. Have us have the, the, the rebel being broken. You know, there are four lights or whatever. So that, but, but give us an instance where someone who remembers the Jedi is having trouble finding them or finding people who even are willing to discuss the Jedi. His inquiries draw the Empire's attention. He is captured, and Vader is then trying to break his mind. We've got the different stages here of the Purge. We've got the killing. We've got the wiping out of information and trying to affect a sort of societal collective memory. What about individual memory? What about the breaking down of individual spirits to the point where they don't believe the Jedi heroes existed or they're not willing to put their faith in them anymore? Something like that. Give us something insanely dark and very personal to a character. Hey, even bring back a character perhaps that we haven't seen in a while that might make sense to be part of, uh, you know, the Rebellion. Later on, bring us them and give us something for it. Uh, give us something that really takes us to that dark place and adds that last angle that would really sort of give us a complete view of the purge. You know, of the idea of purging of not only people, but information. It's definitely a great concept. And I know as a Star Wars fan and fan of the Jedi and their fall, it's something that everybody's been kind of curious about, interested in as are the dark times granted they may not be what we're hoping when we see them in the, the forms that they're being presented as it's kind of playing to nathan's hate of the dark times comic but you know it, it's it's one of those things where it's it strikes the curiosity we as fans want to know more and they provide these stories and it's great fun in that regard granted it doesn't always turn out the way we kind of thought it might but every now and again you get a gem and I want to say, for me personally, I felt that the second issue of Tyrant's Fist was a gem issue. It definitely it and the first issue that kicked off all the purges were probably my favorite two issues of all these, if I had to pick you know, a couple single issues. Um, I, I, I'm going to stick with, uh, I didn't really care for the Hidden Blade as much as the rest. I think I'm going to go with the art style on that, kind of brought me down a little bit too much like uh, Blood Ties styling. And, you know, maybe it's your cup of tea, it's just not mine. But uh, other than that, though, I think it was pretty strong. Strong uh, set of comics, even though they weren't designed to be a series, they work well together, and I like that. That's always fun when they're able to take these one-shots and make it where it feels themed enough that you could put them all together and feel like it's designed that way from the start. Yeah, I'm with you on the bookends, the first and last being definitely the strongest in this quasi-series we've got here. For me, Seconds to Die was the one that really fell flat. Hidden Blade was just sort of, you know, you could easily toss it out and have it not really affect much of anything. But I definitely like Chris Scalf's artwork a whole lot more than Jim Hall's, I believe it was, uh, in Seconds to Die. But it'd be interesting to see if they go anywhere with this. We've got that Darth Vader line of comics out there right now. Hayden Blackman doing quite a bit of those, though, of course, not all of them, with uh, the Nine Assassins thing coming up, or the Ninth Assassin thing coming up. So uh, we'll just have to see where it goes. It'd be interesting if they could sort of dovetail those two series into one, since they are tying into somewhat similar concepts of Vader's growth uh, in this general time period. The dark, dark times before the middle times. <laughs>
All right, we're just about out of time, but before we run out today, we want to mention real quick our Audible trial. Uh, the Star Wars Report Network has an Audible trial. It's www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report. Uh, you put that in, you get a free trial, and you help us at the same time. Uh, help the whole network of shows, not just our show, but it also helps Star Wars Report, Wampus Lair, all the uh, Star Wars Report podcasts, all the network. It's really cool in that regards, and you get a learn some really cool Star Wars stuff if you get the right books, you know. You never know. Audible.com's got a lot of cool stuff, so go check that out. Uh, and uh, that about wraps up our show. And that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you, everyone, for once again hanging out with us and sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com, as well as Zoom, iTunes, and airing on Middle Earth Network Radio. Our episodes are also available right on our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, your comments just might be heard on our show. In fact, each month we will be trying to release one of our feedback episodes where we answer your emails and messages. So if you have something to say about an episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. So once again, this has been for Star Wars Beyond the Films, Mark Herleman and Whistler. And Nathan P. Butler. Saying thanks for listening. And may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. That Alexander Freed will keep up this level of work and never return to the Lost Sons level. We'll get another purge set sometime before episode four. I didn't think it was that bad. Jeez. Okay.